I have, I have admired you for, and prayed for you for these 10 years of uh, Bethany Community Church's existence. It is just such a privilege for me to be with you today. Um, I'm so glad that Pastor Daniel could join our fellowship this morning and be able to share in God's Word there. I don't know that there are very many people on the planet with whom I share more of a worldview about God, um, people, salvation, uh, life than I do your pastor. And so it's a, it's a privilege for me to be here. He did give me some wrong information, though, I think. He told me that all the men wore bow ties here. <laughs> so I, I came ready, but uh, apparently that was some wrong information. <laughs> One of the things that we share is our commitment to biblical authority. And um, what I want to talk with you this morning about is that there are ways that we can believe the Bible, but then practically deny its truth, and how that can destroy generations of lives. You know, the prevailing opinion among many evangelicals today uh, is, and we're going to be looking at David's life today, uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Second Samuel, we'll start it around chapter 8. Um, the prevailing opinion is that David's sin was a big deal, but not that big a deal because God ended up forgiving him and he got to keep on being going as king. Uh, what I hope to do this morning is to give you a survey of 2 Samuel to reveal to you that that's a lie that we tell ourselves to minimize our own sin and our own sinful independence from Christ and the cherished gospel. It's nothing less than a practical denial of the authority of God in our lives and the Bible that we pretend to affirm. And so I have titled this message, What Can One Sin Do? We pick it up in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 8 where we see the splendor of success the splendor of success. David had success at every side after a long climb to the top. If you're familiar with the story, you know that David had a long time where he was on the run from Saul, but now he's king and he's finding success everywhere. Look, for example, at chapter 8, verse 6 of 2 Samuel 8. It says, David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. The Syrians became servants to David, brought tribute. Here's the sentence. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Uh, skip down to verse 11. Uh, it talks about David's conquering of some peoples and how he took this gold and silver from all the nations he subdued. And then it gives a list of the nations. From Edom, Moab, Ammonites, Philistines, Amalek, the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. I could give you a little map, but know that all those peoples are peoples from the south to the east to the west, uh, another to the south, and then to the north. So everywhere David went, he was winning. And the conclusion 
is the repeated refrain that you see in verse 14. That last sentence of verse 14 very much, well, it's the exact same sentence that you saw in verse 6. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The crucible in which we forget the sinfulness of sin is our own success. The crucible in which we forget that sin is big and fast and deadly is our own success. And David had met with so much success that it was easy for him to lose sight of how sin is big and fast and deadly. And so now I invite you to skip to chapter 11, which reads a little bit like a newspaper account. You will see that as you read the narrative of the Old Testament, you'll have once in a while editorial comments by the writer. The writer will come in and say something about what's happening. Here in this chapter, it's very subtly done. There is no editorial comment in the entire chapter. It reads just like a, just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing until you get to the very last sentence of the chapter. The subtlety of sin. Verse 11, or cha- chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. The subtlety of sin, to be able to be resting on one's laurels in victory and His army has gone out to fight, but he hasn't. Now, we don't know the precise reasons why he didn't, but he didn't. And then the very next verse, verse 2, begins with a beautiful one word in Hebrew. uh, It says, and it happened. And it happened. It, it, It means, literally, it just so happened. It just so happened. It was just a chance thing. Just a chance thing. It happened late one afternoon. He arose and he saw a woman from his roof. The subtlety of sin. It, it just happened. Have you ever heard people say that about their sin? I don't, know what, I don't know what happened. It just happened. The subtlety of sin. And so we see David's adultery in verse 4. We see in verse 12 that he compounds that by lying Uh, David says to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, remain here, tomorrow I'll send you back. He's not saying that he's going to send him to his death. Verse 13, he invites him to get drunk. Um, And then in verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the very hand of the man who he once killed. And in that letter he says, go attack the city and then withdraw from Uriah so that he dies. So it reads, this whole chapter reads just like a newspaper accounting of it until you get to the last verse. Verse 27. Oh, it's so understated. Don't miss it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing David 
had done displeased the Lord. Now you all know how, if you're familiar with the story, how David was confronted with this sin, his grief and his asking for forgiveness of that sin in Psalm 51. Uh, I, I just want to talk with you a little bit about the consequences in unexpected ways. The consequences in unexpected ways. Sin is bigger, faster, and more deadly than we are aware. And here, I invite you to skip over to chapter 13, where we are introduced to two cousins. Amnon, who is the son of David, and his cousin Jonadab, who is the son of David's brother Shemaiah. You will see that these two cousins conspire. Amnon is quite fat, infatuated with a young lady. This young lady's his half-sister. And he actually uh, is really uh, so uh, desirous of her that he talks with Jonadab about it. And Jonadab, it says in verse 3, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, uh, basically, pretend to be sick. And then when your father comes to you, just tell him, my, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare food. And then she'll come and then you can have her. This is the consequence of David's sin because what's going on is these two cousins are conspiring and David is an unaware, overly permissive father. What is it that has caused David to be unaware of what's going on in his house? He's been trying to deal with all the mess that has happened as a result of his own sin. This is what happens when people do have failures that in their family life, they become unaware of what's going on in their own homes and overly permissive. And so in verses 14 and 15, you see Amnon uh, putting Tamar into the Me Too movement. He takes her, and then he hates her with a greater hatred than the love he had had for her. Now, Tamar has a brother, uh, a half-brother to Amnon, whose name is Absalom. And Absalom, verses 20 through 22, talks to Tamar. Has your brother Amnon been with you? Hold your peace, my brother. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. In other words, he's trying to encourage his sister. And Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. What can one sin do? And notice David in verse 21. When David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But you will notice he did nothing. An unaware, overly permissive father. So then in the rest of the chapter here, what we have is Absalom's plot to murder Amnon. 
He, uh, he gets Amnon drunk. Um, I wonder where he learned that. And then Absalom murders Amnon. Basically, they invite all of the, the king's sons to a sheep shearing, which is basically a party. And they um, uh, and, and notice Absalom commands his servants, verse 28, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. When I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Same kinds of words that were used of, of Joshua in taking the land are used in murdering someone here. What can one sin do? David once again is oblivious to these things. The news comes to David in verse 30 that all the king's sons have been struck down and the king arises and tears his garments. But Jonadab, the guy who was part of the conspiracy from the very beginning, Amnon's cousin, says, no, 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 don't let my lord suppose they've killed all the young men, verse 32, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. In other words, be comforted, only one of your sons is dead. (laughs) What can one sin do? There's a sadness over the whole family and cousin Jonadab is the comforter. The end of of chapter 13, verse 37, Absalom fled, went to Talmai, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. That's way up in the north. He just runs away. And David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom fled, went to Geshur, was there three years. The spirit of David longed to go out to Absalom. He wanted some resolution of this. But he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. But notice, he did nothing. The unaware, overly permissive father. Now, there's another thing that happens, though, in these kinds of circumstances. Not only is there an unaware, overly permissive father, but now, after he starts thinking about it, he becomes the absent, harsh father. Chapter 14. Joab decides to take, he's the general in charge of the army, he decides to take matters into his own hands and help David get Absalom back, and there's a long story there about how he does that, Uh, but we'll pick it up at verse 23, it says, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now the whole goal of getting Absalom was in order to bring some kind of resolution, some kind of, of, of reconciliation here. But now David, moving away from the unaware, overly permissive father role, he now becomes the absent, harsh father. He doesn't welcome his son, and there's two years of silent dysfunction, no one talking about anything. What can one sin do? Finally, at the end of chapter 14, Absalom takes matters into his own hands with violence. Look at verse 28, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Absalom sent for Joab, but Joab wouldn't come. He sent a second time. Joab wouldn't come. He said to his servants, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go, set it on fire. 
So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Joab arose and went to Absalom and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? <laughs> Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king and to ask why have I come from Geshur. It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore let me go into the presence of, of the king. If there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Saying, I want some, I want some reconciliation. The longing of this young man. And Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. The splendor of success, the subtlety of sin, the consequences in unexpected ways of David first being unaware and overly permissive and then being absent and harsh. And now we come to the disaster. Uh, because Absalom was a rock star. He was Bruno Mars, Justin Timberlake, Drake, and Adam Levine all wrapped into one. Uh, they, he had such great hair. I, I'm covetous, okay? He had such great hair that he grew five pounds of hair a year. Can you imagine? They cut it because it was so magnificent, they would cut it every year and weigh it. <laughs> to be able to say what amazing man this is, you know, with all this hair, you know. Like all rock stars, Absalom was a talented man, but troubled. I want you to notice, Absalom had three sons and a daughter. The Scripture doesn't tell us the name of his three sons. But it does tell us the name of his daughter. He named his daughter Tamar, after his sister who had been violated. Absalom remembers pain. So Absalom, verse chapter 15, uh, it says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom used to rise early, stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Uh, how many of you ever remember the Adventures in Odyssey series? Anybody remember that? The, the radio program? There was a time where this kind of ne'er-do-well guy named Bart Rathbone was running for mayor of Odyssey. And his motto was that he was going to give, this is how he said it, I'm going to promise everything to everyone without any costing anybody anything. You know? And that's what Absalom was doing. He's promising everything to everyone without it costing anybody anything. I mean, it's just like all of the ads that you're watching right now, right? Free health care, college paid for everybody, there's uh, lower your taxes, if only I were in charge, right? It's a political ad. And that's what Absalom is doing. He's running a political campaign. Only what kind of a campaign is it? It is to take 
the kingship away from his father. Absalom lies to the people and he steals their hearts like a good politician promises, promises. So he'd spent three years with his grandfather way up north. He spent two years all alone. Now according to chapter 15, verse 7, he spends four years setting his plot. It says, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So three years with grandpa, two years alone, four years setting his plot. And then an interesting thing happens in verse 12 of chapter 15. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. We're introduced to David's chief of staff, Ahithophel, whom Absalom is now welcoming into his orbit, into his world, saying, Ahithophel, come join my conspiracy. And Ahithophel actually joins the conspiracy. Did you ever wonder why it was that David's chief counselor joined Absalom's conspiracy? You have to put a couple of things together in order to understand why. Later on in 2 Samuel, in a chapter that you'll just read over really fast because it's describing all of David's mighty men, his 30 mighty men, his three mighty men, all this. And you just read these names and you just kind of fall asleep. In that chapter, we find out that Ahithophel's son is a man named Eliam, who is one of the 30 mighty men of David, an inner circle guy in the army. And another one of the 30 is Uriah. So Eliam and Uriah are two of the top military personnel in all of the kingdom of David. <clears throat> Eliam tells Uriah, hey, I've got somebody for you to marry. My daughter. And so Uriah marries Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba. What that means is Ahithophel is Bathsheba's granddaughter. Why does Ahithophel join the conspiracy against Absalom, or against David with Absalom? Because he saw what King David had done to his granddaughter. What can one sin do? And so the conspiracy grows and Absalom overthrows the kingdom. Uh, David flees Jerusalem at the end of chapter 15. And now old rivalries rear their ugly heads. You remember Saul had been king and so now all the people who had been for Saul, now that David's looking weak, they decide to join the conspiracy with Absalom. And we find out in chapter 16 verses 1 to 4 that Mephibosheth's loyalty is in doubt. And then in the rest of the chapter, verses 5 through 14 of 2 Samuel 16, there's a guy named Shammai who is also from the house of Saul. And he is a, a person who's throwing down curses on David. David is leaving Jerusalem and he's down walking on this ridge and Shammai is on another ridge and Shammai is just throwing rocks and heaping curses and Joab says, please let me go over there and kill him. Please. And David says, no, just let him go. 
as they go on their way fleeing Jerusalem. Absalom asserts his right to rule by taking the royal harem in the sight of all Israel, chapter 16, verses 22 through 22. And Joab kills Absalom. There are 20,000 other people who die in this uh, civil war, Second uh, Samuel 18, verses 6 through 8. And Ahithophel, the chief counselor, when he sees that his advice is not being taken, he commits suicide. What can one sin do? And now, it is just here that things start to go bad. <laughs> Look with me at chapter 19, verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 9. <clears throat> it says, All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. That precious tribal unity which was so fragile. Because you remember the sons of Jacob. Did they get along? Did those sons of Jacob get along? No, they didn't. They hated each other. They even threw one of them into slavery, right? And plotted to kill him. So they'd never gotten along, and this tribal unity was always a fragile thing, and Saul couldn't hold it, and David could, but then, as a result of all of this, tribal unity is broken, and, and they're all arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. Chapter 19, verse 40 the king went to Gilgal, all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. You see, that's just a little hint to say tribal unity is completely messed up. All the men of Israel came to the king, said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all the kings and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king and in David also. We have more than you. Why then did you despise it? Do you see what's going on? The unity of this country is being blown apart. What can one sin do? Joab kills Amasa because David had replaced Joab with Amasa as general of the army. Both of those guys are nephews of David and cousins to one another. You see that in chapter 20, verse 10, where we discover that Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. What can one sin do? At the end of David's life, do you know how David ties up loose ends? In 1 Kings chapter 2, and skip over there now, you'll see this is the very end of it. David orders that Joab gets killed. It's almost like the Godfather here. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, David's on his deathbed, and he's saying it a little bit like... Uh, uh, 
Um, Marlon Brando. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. Right? That's how he's saying it. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner and Amasa, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act there according to your wisdom, he says to Solomon, but do not let his gray head go down to the Sheol in peace. In other words, do him in. He orders a hit on Joab. And then you remember Shammai, the guy that was throwing the rocks and heaping the curses on David as he was fleeing Jerusalem? Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. There's also with you Shammai, son of Gera, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I won't put you to death. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man. You'll know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down to, with blood to Sheol. He's ordering the hit on Shammai. And so, what we find out at the end of chapter 2 is that Solomon has a man. Uh, a man by the name of Benaiah. Benaiah is a fellow who is a very powerful guy. He killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. He killed what was called a handsome Egyptian. Uh, telling the story of him in 2 Samuel 23. But here, what happens is, in chapter 2, verse 25, so Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. That was Adonijah, his, uh, Solomon's half-brother, who was vying for the kingship. He ordered Benaiah to kill him, and he killed him. Chapter 2, verse 34 Then Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. Who was that? That was Joab, the former general of the army. And then chapter 2, verse 46. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. You get the picture? It's the thir third verse of this song. Somehow we don't get praise songs about this, do we? Rightfully so. And he went out and struck him down and he died. See, these guys were all killed by this hitman, and you can draw a direct line from David's sin to all those effects. What can one sin do? Now, let me bring it home for you and think about the so what of this as we've taken this journey through 2 Samuel. First of all, it's important that we recognize that the, the authority of the Word of God is not just a theoretical reality. It is a practical reality in our lives. Uh, perhaps of greatest importance is let's pull out a little bit to the even larger picture of what is God trying to say to us in the Scriptures. And I can summarize it in one sentence. God is at work among people to demonstrate that He alone is qualified to build His kingdom. And what you have in the narrative of the Bible is that people are coming onto the stage of biblical history and there is at every person who is a so-called hero, there is this anticipation, maybe they're the one that will bring in the kingdom of God. And so we have Adam and we think, maybe the ultimate kingdom of God is established. No, he sins. And then we have all these different people 
uh, Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then we go through the, the, the period of the judges and each judge, maybe they're the one. And then we come to the kings and we think maybe Saul certainly stands head and shoulders above, but no, disqualified, not the king. And then we see Wow, it's got to be David. He is an amazing king. Certainly, he will be the conduit through which the ultimate kingdom of God is established. No. There is only one king. And that is God Himself. And God established His rule through His Son. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, is it any surprise to you that there was a sign hung above Jesus' cross. Because Jesus comes and He lives a perfect life. And He is the King. (laughs) And He's coming and preaching the kingdom of God. And what did we do? We put Him to death. And above His cross there was this sign, this is Jesus, the King. Of course it says the King of the Jews. It goes to the Jew first. But he's the king, I tell you, the rightful king. And so as we pull back, the reason why all of this that we've just read today is in the Bible is to demonstrate there is a Savior and there is a king and you are not him. (laughs) You're not the king. And stop trying to insert yourself into the narrative of the Bible as though you're the hero. You're not the hero. There's only one hero. The Lord Jesus Christ, He's the hero. Not even David is the hero. Because we see through even just one sin what happens. So that's the larger picture. And today, if there is any kingdom you're trying to seek or to build that is not the kingdom of God and the King, the true King Jesus, then you are chasing after vanity. Nothing. Nothingness. It doesn't matter how nice your family is. It does not matter how much money you make or what kind of hobbies or house you have or how many good things you do. You are building on sand. So we got to think about the big picture of what's going on in the overall biblical narrative here. Secondly, of course, it does tell us to stay far away from adultery, doesn't it? <laughs> That's pretty good, pretty good application of the passage. should stay away from that because it leads to all manner of things that we're not anticipating at the moment. There may be someone here in this room right now that's contemplating that. There's a dissatisfaction of soul, an unsettledness of heart, and they know the Bible is true intellectually. They have lived it, perhaps have grown up as a Christian in a, in, in a, in a Christian family, as a, even trusting Christ as a child, but now there is something that is yearning for them and they're thinking, that will satisfy me and I'm going to chase that. Don't chase after it. I beg you. Remember what this weird guy with the bow tie said. (laughs) What can one sin do? Then, of course, there are others of us who are feeling, oh, good, he's on to something that doesn't matter to me. I'm not there. I don't have any temptations about that whatsoever. I guess I'm good. Oh, beware, 
dear one, beware. There are all kinds of adulteries, the most important of which is our lack of faithfulness to our Savior. Jeremiah says, she saw all, for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, so she too went after adulteries. A faithfulness to God. We ought to pray always, shouldn't we? Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What do you do if you've already sinned? Anybody here It's already sinned? <laughs> okay, there's a few of you who have already sinned. I'm glad to see that. What do we do when we've sinned? And how can we, how can we maybe hold back that ravage that one sin can do? Well, first it means we should be honest with ourselves and others. You are not the victim. When you sin, don't think, oh man, I, uh, so much has happened to me. I, I hate that language that says someone fell into sin. No, you didn't fall. Don't play the victim. Don't minimize or excuse your sin. Rather, run to the cross. Run to the cross of Christ. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Recognize that once we've sinned, things will never be the same, so stop trying to make it so. Consequences are going to happen. You can't undo what was done, but you can always make the consequences worse, both for you and your loved ones. The only way you run is to the cross of Christ. The only place you can go is Jesus, His faithfulness. If we died with Him, we live with Him. If we endure, we'll reign with Him. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. If we're faithless, He remains faithful, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. And it is important, therefore, that you don't just say, yeah, yeah, I trusted Jesus as my Savior once, and now tell me what's the real thing for how I live now. No, no, no. The gospel is to be cherished at all times, everywhere, every day, and it needs to be repeated by ourselves all the time. It's our only hope in life and death that we are not our own, but belong to God, body and soul, and to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid for all our sins by His death at the cross. It is our union with Christ that will overcome. There are people who suggest that better community helps. And I suppose it helps. One of the things that I cherish with Pastor Daniel is that we have a group of like-minded pastors that meet on the last Thursday of every month. And one of the purposes of that is that we're in relationship and we care for one another. It helps to hold us you know, I think, it's, I think it is a helpful thing. But I can always lie to Daniel. 
And he can always lie to me. That's not what's going to hold me fast. What's going to hold me fast is that God, the Son, died for me. And I'm thinking, what else do I need? I'm thinking, some accountability group is better? No, only He will hold me fast. Tell the gospel to yourself all the time. It is not that one, it is that one time thing, right? Justification. <laughs> but for our sanctification, we must remind ourselves over and over and over that we are not our own and that we have a Savior who loves us so. Dear ones, do you know that Jesus loves you and gave His life to save you? No matter what sin you have done, He will forgive you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we've taken this survey of 2 Samuel, we're aware of our own drivenness to build our own kingdoms. It's one thing to look at David. It's another thing to look at ourselves. Would you forgive us for the ways in which we've sought to build our own kingdoms and chased after other lovers to recognize that our satisfaction can be found in Christ alone? And dear God, I pray that this would be uh, as this church has always been, I pray that it would be a beacon, a herald of this good news that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. That Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Would you speak to that soul today who's never put their hope and faith in Jesus that they too can be forgiven of all their sins by turning from them and turning to Jesus and what He did at the cross to take their place, to take their punishment for their sins. Help them so to believe that and to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and because He did, we too can have brand new lives, and one day we will be able to enjoy You forever. And we will laugh at the question, what can one sin do? For Christ will have triumphed. In His name, Amen.